J.T. Crowley is talking books. On the show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello, everyone. I'm J.T. Crowley, and today on my show, I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Eugene de Vriest-Betit to talk about his book, Collective Amnesia, American Apartheid. He spent 20 years in the U.S. Army and has also served as a church deacon. He presently lives in Winchester, Virginia, in the U.S. with his wife, Sheila, who has supported him throughout the entire time he has spent on bringing this book to the public domain. He has close friends who are African-Americans, and he knows from a lifetime's experience that skin tone plays no part in character or abilities. While he served in the army, he lived and worked alongside soldiers from various ethnic backgrounds, and to him, irrespective of skin color, they were simply soldiers, there to do a job. So let's invite him back onto the show again, everybody, to talk about collective amnesia, but also, everybody, this time we've got a little bit of a twist to the podcast because we're going to talk to um, Jean Petit about the new book that he's written, but it's still a work in progress and it's going to come out for those in America in the fall and for those of us elsewhere in the late autumn of this year. <laughs> <laughs> so let's invite... Uh, Jean, back onto the show. Jean, it's great to see you again. Come and join me and to talk about collective amnesia and unsung patriots, African-Americans in America's wars. Welcome to the show, Jean. Good to be with you, John. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Jean, let's, let's talk about collective amnesia. Um... In your first chapter, Gene, on page three, uh, we're talking about white supremacy and racism. You talk about racism by saying racism presumes that one of color is superior to another, which results when prejudicial attitudes are combined with a power structure that can and very often does lead to dormitory institutions aspiring to retain control over others. You even hint at European missionaries viewing native people as heathens and savages requiring conversation, conversion to Christianity or extermination. Why did you start this book off with these powerful viewpoints? And why did you choose Robert Jensen's quote at the beginning? Well, I can't remember the quote offhand. It would be more powerful if I could guess it, I guess. But anyway, he's a professor of journalism at a university in Texas. He and is. It's a powerful quote. I can get it pretty fast. Well, that's fine. Uh, we're all in the race game, so to speak, either consciously or unconsciously. Mm. We can reject white supremacy and support racial projects aimed at a democratic distribution of power and a just distribution of resources. Or we can claim 
to not be interested in race, in which case we almost certainly will end up tacitly supporting white supremacy by virtue of our unwillingness to confront it. In a society in which white supremacy is structured every aspect of our world, there can be no claim to neutrality. It's very powerful because we never like to think of it, but white supremacy is precisely the same as Hitler's notion of Aryan supremacy. I mean, you substitute one word for the other, that one group of people can be better than the other, which is anyone who's been out in the world and has any experience knows that's not true. We're all individuals. And some of us are bums and some of us are saints or geniuses who change the world. But skin color, it's laughable that anyone seriously would think that that makes any difference. Oh, yes, you know, some for right or wrong reasons, you know. Um, So that was really the main reason why you started your book with that quote and the subject in that chapter. Yeah, that's where all this stuff begins. That's where, I mean, it seems incredible to us now that the concept of race didn't exist 500 years ago. It basically was invented so that uh, <clears throat> Virginia planters could justify enslaving black people from Africa for life. They are clearly, oops, excuse me, I did not do what you told me to do. And it's, um... <laughs> so let, let's go to chapter two, Gene. Let's go to chapter okay. two. Gene, you, you entitled that, you know, Slavery, America's uh, Peculiar Institutions. You open up that chapter with describing how the slave trade operated and the appalling conditions that the slaves were kept in as they were transported to the so-called New World. The numbers involved and the impact the black African Americans had on the southern states' economies at that time. Would you care to enlighten us here? And why did you opt for a quote from Marquis de la Fayette? Well, that's a powerful quote. I can remember that one. That's not. He said, "I never would have drawn my sword in the cause of America if I knew that I was thereby." Cut founding a, a slave nation, or words to that, oh, that's very close to it. So he would, we probably wouldn't have gotten our independence without him and getting his getting France to align with us. <clears throat> and he said he wouldn't have done it if he'd known that we would have ended up being a slave country, which we were, of course, until 1865. And <clears throat> I delved on, studied American slavery in great detail because we in America tend to say, oh yes, we had slavery and move right on as if it were no big deal because there, yes, there was slavery. I mean, no one knows when it started, but it goes, you can read about it in the Bible, but it was not as oppressive as what we came up with in the new world here. I mean, I think probably, Partly was because it cost a lot of money to transport a slave. It's miserable. I mean, they they were confined in coffin-like compartments down in the hold. 
as miserable as their experience was, it still cost whoever bought them when they arrived uh, a lot of money, comparable to buying a car for each slave. Slaves were insured. <clears throat> they were so expensive. And, and they were insured by bankers in the North, by the way. It's not like this was only an institution that affected the South. <clears throat> but there, there were... It was so oppressive that they had to have very tight control. So they, some, a lot of slaves ran away. And those that were caught were punished severely by whipping. <clears throat> some had their some appendages, like an ear or a foot or toes. I don't think foot, because they couldn't have done much work. But if any one of your viewers watched Roots, Oh, yeah. Protagonist Kunta Kinte, in mm -hmm. fact, had his toes chopped off the first time he ran away. It's a, not only a deterrent, to, so he wouldn't do it again, but it made it very hard for him to walk. And unlikely that he could do it, would do it again. Uh, another aspect of American slavery was there was no regard whatsoever for slave families. So mothers and fathers were sold off from each other. Their children were sold off separately with no regard to their relationship. Uh, and then one in 1808, we banned the international slave trade as in no, no one could import slaves anymore. Of course, that continued smuggling, you know. <laughs> Laws are useful because some people comply, but not all. Anyway, what the effect that had was slave breeding. Another unbelievable aspect is even though slaves were said not to be human, their masters often slept with their female slaves. That's why we have so many what we call mulattoes. I mean, there are other terms, creoles, mixed race. <clears throat> didn't all, they didn't all come from liaisons with the owners, but many of them did. And for instance, Thomas Jefferson, who we hold in the highest regard, and rightly so, but he had a long time liaison with Sally Hemings. They had six children. And he, he freed them when he in his will and he died, but no other slaves because his estate was in debt and he needed to sell those slaves off to pay it. So that if you look into it, it's actually pretty ghastly, even though some Southerners said, oh, the slaves were happy. We treated them well. They got, you know, it was like they had social security. They didn't have to worry about food or clothing. Yeah, well, they got one new set of clothing a year, and it was the cheapest. And It's quite interesting, you know, when we think about the apartheid movement in South Africa. We think that Glad was you Glad you brought that up. That was nothing, you know, compared to the hundreds of years that's been going on in the U.S. Yeah, in fact, Hitler said he, he admired America for the way we got away with our version of apartheid when in the rest of the world, of course, it wasn't happening in South America, South Africa and Rhodesia when he was alive, but we never got called on our apartheid. It just was. 
And that's why apartheid is part of the subtitle in the book, isn't it? Yes. Jean, can we go to chapter five now? Um, okay. It's headed up Emancipation and Reconstruction, because I think this is a very important uh, chapter. My understanding of emancipation is the process or fact of being set free from legal, social, or political restrictions, liberation. In other words, so for me, this is an important chapter in your book. That's why I want to talk to you about it. You touch upon the Emancipation Proclamation that came into effect on the 1st of January, 1863. You say many scholars consider the Emancipation Proclamation to be a second American revolution. Just as Abraham Lincoln acknowledged a new birth of freedom in his landmark address at Gettysburg. Can you tell the listeners, the viewers, why emancipation and reconstruction is so important to you, so much so you dedicated a whole chapter in your book? Well, even though in, in our Declaration of Independence, which Thomas Jefferson wrote, we proclaim that all men are created equal, we certainly qualified it because we treated blacks as subhuman, but the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves and in the process, I mean, they started the process of making them citizens. It would take us a couple of years after the Civil War and two amendments to our <clears throat> Constitution, but it, it was radical. And in fact, that's why the Republicans who drove through these, this legislation were called radicals. What was radical about them is they realized that <clears throat> If the slaves are free, they must be citizens on an equal basis with, I guess in, their, in the terms of the time, with even whites. I mean, it, it was radical, but that was a new birth of freedom that everybody in America, I mean, we excluded Native Americans until 1924, but everybody, except women do, I guess, because women didn't get to vote here until 1920. But it was, was a radical realignment of the way our government worked. And that's what Lincoln was referring to. Although, I mean, everything in history is always sort of qualified. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't free many people. It only announced that all the slaves and the territory occupied by the Confederacy were freed. And they weren't freed unless the Union Army occupied that particular territory. Which happened, I mean, you know, continually the Union rolled up the South, especially after March 1864 when U.S. Grant, Ulysses Simpson Grant, became our general in chief. That's an interesting um, viewpoint. Um, do you know, when I read your book, the, one of the things that really um, stuck out for me was in chapter eight, and that's where I want to go to. Um, you embody what lay behind here, the Jim Crow laws. Now, until I read your book, I never heard of Jim Crow laws. But having read your book, 
and a few other done some other research i fully understand that well i think i do now but when i researched jim crow laws to see why you talk about them in this chapter they were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation in the southern u.s states other areas have similar policies but over time distanced themselves by banning discrimination in public places and voting but basically the southern states adopted these laws to ensure black people during the reconstruction period were disenfranchised from making any political or economical gains am i right well during during reconstruction they they the blacks were enfranchised that that was our 15th amendment but of course Southerners were never happy with that, and there was always a struggle going back and forth. The U.S. Army was down there until 1877 to kind of keep a lid on, because there was a Ku Klux Klan going around terrorizing and murdering people. There was a lot of bribery and fraud. Uh, <clears throat> forgot my little screen there. But it was only after 1877, when we had a very tight, very close presidential election. In fact, the Democratic candidate, Tilden, most likely won the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. <clears throat> but it was so, so close that we had a special commission of, well, I won't go into the commission, but ultimately they gave it to the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. B. Hayes, on the condition that the, the troops be withdrawn from the Southern states. After that, the South gradually had things their way. It took a, a while to change things. And I quoted in that chapter from a Southern historian, as a matter of fact, named Woodward, who said essentially that those who say that Jim Crow originated from Reconstruction and the struggle with blacks and whites are embarrassed by the fact that it didn't happen until many years later, starting in around 1890 and going into the 18, I mean, the 1910s and 20s, where they, they were still solidifying, passing new laws that made it harder and harder and more and more oppressive for blacks. And besides laws, I mean, there were laws that prohibited blacks and whites from marrying, for instance. That, and unbelievably, that law was not repealed by our Supreme Court until 1967. I know that well. The Jim Crow laws, as far as I understand, were still uh, floating around until 1965. Am I right? Oh, yeah. And I'm just saying here, here's one, the, the miscegenation. That was not stricken until 1967. That was a year after I graduated from college. So I remember that. It's pretty stark, amazing to me. I mean... Uh, I'm an army brat. I had no idea of all this stuff. And it wasn't just laws. It was custom, which, or which sometimes Southerners call it folkways. Folk laws. 
folk, yeah, folkways. Folk <laughs> yeah, which I mean, which one of the quotes was it gave the power to every streetcar driver, bus driver, uh, <clears throat> theater usher. Uh. Yeah, any anybody or or punks, young young guys, who wanted to terrorize any old black, any old where. It was a very incredibly nasty system, and I don't know exactly why it was called Jim Crow, but Jim Crow was a, a minstrel dance where Amer whites would put blackface on and talk in dialogue, dialogue, singing dialogue, and basically it was meant to put down blacks so how how all that system got got be called jim crow is still a mystery to me i haven't made that connection i want to move on um dr petit to chapter 10 in your book um this is the civil rights movement 1947 to 1980 redeeming the soul of american the American Civil Rights Movement was a political movement, as far as I can see, and a campaign from 1954 to 1968 in the US to abolish institutional racial segregation, discrimination, and disenfranchisement throughout the US. And of course, the movement had its roots in the Reconstruction era during the late 1970, although it made its largest legislative gains in the 1960s after years of direct action and grassroots protests. This is a very important chapter in your book. And of course, the movement is synonymous with Martha Luther King Jr. You have some interesting views around this area. Would you like to discuss them, talk to us, why you put them in there? Why? I have more views that weren't necessarily in that book, which I, I've come to learn that African-Americans resisted being put in the lower caste, caste system from the get-go. I mean, that's the slaves who ran away were resisting that. Uh, we had a great black, hmm, he was, he was multi, it was a polymath named Frederick Douglass, hmm. who was a voice for black people. He was basically the man who convinced Lincoln to allow blacks to fight for the North. And even after the Civil War, until he died in 1890, he was looking out for the interest of black people, African-Americans. So there never was a time when blacks weren't pushing back. I mean, historians and myself included have tended to believe it, it, it happened only after World War II, but after World War I, there was a great burgeoning of resistance. I mean, there were 400 now half a million African-Americans that were in uniform during World War I. There were a million in World War II. And after they'd served their country for two, three or four years, they certainly came away with a conception that they were full American citizens. I mean, a guy who's ready and likely to die for his country is likely to get that impression. So after both world wars, there was a great impetus and soldiers and officers were the backbones 
they sort of mentored younger people. So yes, I mean, we perceive of it and we see that Martin Luther King had a major role, but there were many, many, many other people like John Lewis, a recent sainted memory, who's a congressman who, he was a young kid, I mean, college student who participated in the, the uh, internet, interstate bus <coughs> deals where they, they would, I mean, it was illegal for blacks and whites to be on the same bus. Or blacks were supposed to be in the back of the bus, but they, they challenged that system and buses were firebombed. Then <coughs> they did a march in Alabama, which is sort of the center of animus against blacks having rights. <coughs> and they, <coughs> there were two marches, I think, across the Pettus Bridge going from Selma to the state capital, Birmingham. And the first time, John Lewis got beaten to a pulp. So, and I could rattle off a whole batch of other names, but yes, Martin Luther King gets, gets a lot of credit and rightly so, he was very courageous and very articulate. And we all know he gave his life for the cause because the sniper, shot him down cold blood in 1968. And also, I can remember um, Muhammad Ali saying, why should I go and fight for this country yeah. when I can't even be treated as, you know, when I'm treated as a second-class citizen, I have to go in the back door to the cafe shops. Yeah, God bless him. Oh. If I were African-American, I don't know, but I hope I would have said the same. So, I mean, in your book, Collective um, Amnesia is full of these sort of uh, stories, the history of black Americans, you know, in the wars and the fights that they've had. And, and, you know, when I look at your book, I mean, you certainly believe that, you know, as you said, it doesn't matter what a man's, and I'm including women here as well, their right. skin tone is. A soldier was a soldier there to do a job. And that's what they did. Indeed, they did. And one of the sad things is there was a lot of heroism. There were two African-American divisions in World War I and a great number of soldiers exhibited and performed feats of valor. They were recognized by the French but not by not the United States in, in large case, the cases. Two, two African-Americans finally got the Medal of Honor, which is our, like your Victoria Cross, but in 1996. Now, I figure that out. I mean, <laughs> war ended in 1918. That's a long time. Sure. It's only, only because there was a review. I mean, we became aware that we were I'd say racist to the core. And the same thing happened during World War II. There was, again, a lot of heroism. And I think it was the same year, but I'm not sure, around 1996. Six African-Americans, only one who was still alive, were recognized for their great heroism. 
And two of them, I might add, were volunteers during the Battle of the Bulge. We, I think the Allies in general lost so many soldiers and lacked replacements that they even decided to go ask for volunteers among the many African-American support troops, you know, stevedores, etc. What's so, important to you to put Colin Powell on the cover of your book? Because there is a picture of him there, isn't there? Yes. Well, for a number of reasons. Obviously, he's the first African-American that became chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. Another reason many wouldn't appreciate, but I was a RO Reserve Officer Training Corps product, and so was he. He was not a West Pointer. That was pretty unusual. <clears throat> and he, he never would have risen to his height before Vietnam. Because although we often say that President Truman integrated the armed forces with his, his executive order in 1948, the services, except for the Air Force, which was brand new, they had just broken away from the Army at the time, the services resisted. And the Army's last segregated unit was integrated in 1956, 54, excuse me, six years later. That's how, that's how racist we were. We were determined to be racist to not make a change. Mm. And that's, that's why, you know, America's still got some of the problems it's got today, but we won't yeah, go that. I don't know when it's going to go away, if it ever can, because we brainwashed ourselves that skin tone makes a difference, even though if you go to the beach, a lot of people like to go to the beach and get a good tan, that makes your skin darker. Some people even pay good money to go to tanning salons. I mean, oh, yeah. the irony here is really rich. <laughs> um. I want to move on now, um, Jane, if you don't mind. Uh, I want to go on to Unsung Patriots, um, African-Americans in America's Wars. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, this book, everybody, is still a work in progress. It's draft format. Well, let, let me interrupt you, though. It's not a work in progress. It's, it's submitted. It's, the only work in progress is they're setting the type to it. Uh, because <laughs> Stackpole is... Is it worked? I've, I have a contract with them. First time that I didn't have to pay to have one of my books printed. They're paying me. It's a nice change. I have an agent now. That's a great step forward. Wow. So let's let's talk about the book, you know, which is in nearly out, everybody. We'll agree on that, I suppose. Come, yeah, coming this autumn. <laughs> This autumn for us on, uh, in, the, in Europe and in the UK, and for Americans, it's in the fall. I always say autumn too, John. Come on. Don't pull my chain. <laughs> um, you've got the opening gambit here, it says, you know, in the preface. Uh, Despite centuries of oppression and abuse, African-Americans remain loyal to the United States, fighting for this country, even as slaves, even when they did not enjoy full citizenship. White supremacy has always played a major role in our history, distorting our potential as a nation. Not until recent times have blacks experienced anything like a level playing field 
in the military or society, as this book graphically demonstrates. So this is a continuation on, isn't it, of collective amnesia. It is, and let me tell you how it happened. I, after collective amnesia, I wrote, I kept on studying, and I wrote a, now it's a 700-page book that I call African Americans in American History, 1526 to the present, because it turns out there were African Americans who arrived in, in Florida with the Spanish, first in 1526 in a, in a settlement that didn't last, but also in the oldest city in North America, <clears throat> St. Petersburg, which was 1565. So we, we tend to be, pardon me, Anglo-centric. And we forget about the, the Spaniards, you know. We're talking about North America. They got there first. Wow. Now, in the book. Yeah. But anyway, I had a, a different uh, publisher who said, we like the way you write. But this book is just way too much for us. We're not, we, we don't envision anything of its scope. Could you find a more focused topic? And be, being retired military and kind of grooving on things military and history, I said, sure I can. I write you a book about Blacks in America's wars. And he liked it. It's just that Roman Littlefield, which is the larger company of Stackpole, they liked it too. And I decided, well, they're far better people to go with. They're much bigger than this other company and likely to sell more copies and be more widely known. Because I think to be 100% truthful, I, I figure that this is a very subversive book. Oh, yeah. Americans are interested in things military. Yeah. And they, you know, because it's a large part of our history. And they will learn just about everything that's in collective amnesia, as in the harm that racism has caused us. And of course, as well as the serious harm to African-Americans okay. while reading this adventure story. Let's get on to it, yes. So in the, in the book, I believe there are eight, there's going to be eight chapters. Um, chapter one is Colonial Wars, Revolutionary War and War of 1812. Chapter two is U.S. Collar Troops in the Civil War. Chapter three is Black Soldiers in Grey and Butternuts. Four, Buffalo Soldiers. Chapter five, African-American Service in World War One. Six, African-American Service in World War Two. Chapter seven, Korea, 24th Infantry, the last Buffalo Soldier Unit disbanded. And chapter eight, Vietnam Today. So those are the eight uh, titles to the chapters that are coming up in this new book, everybody. Um, we could be here for a long time going through this book. So I just want to go briefly back to uh, chapter one. And can you talk to us why you've written this chapter? Because it's the colonial policy uh, regarding blacks, malicious service was inconsistent. But in times of trouble, blacks often bore arms. Why chapter one? Well, that's where it all started. I mean, you start start a story. I start at the beginning, <clears throat> and it's very interesting because blacks signed up to fight. I mean, they were 
Lexington and Concord, they were black Minutemen. And they were at Bunker Hill, too. But it turned out that George Washington, who was a Virginian, wasn't all that comfortable with having black soldiers. And they went back and forth. They said no. But then they changed their mind. And the major reason they changed their mind was the British leadership was recruiting blacks. Lord Dunmore, who was the, the uh, governor of Virginia, recruited in what he called an Ethiopian regiment. It wasn't a much of a regiment. It was only 300 troops or so. <clears throat> but there were other leaders, British leaders, who were recruiting blacks. <clears throat> so we really had no choice. You know, I mean, so it's very interesting, don't you think? I do. I do. Um, what grabbed me in this book was chapter four, Buffalo Soldiers. And, you know, it's authorised by Congress in 1866 for regular army regiments, compiled a remarkable record in 85 years of service known as the Buffalo Soldiers. Explain to us, Gene, who are non-Americans, Buffalo Soldiers. What's this about? Well, <clears throat> two of those regiments were cavalry and two were, of course, inf infantry. The two cavalry regiments <clears throat> were fully one-fifth of the cavalry that fought the Indians out west, Native Americans. I mean, we have new terminology all the time. I'm not sure what's copacetic, but we always call them Indians, so I'll just do that. <clears throat> uh, and it's very interesting because Grant, U.S. Grant, he handpicked the colonels of those regiments. So, like, your listeners probably have never heard of Benjamin Grierson, but he is the one that led, led two raids across the length of Mississippi down to Louisiana. You know, three three cavalry regiments he had. The first time was an amazing feat, and he did it again, which I didn't know. I mean, that's not, not widely known. So he was one of the best, and he commanded the 10th Cavalry Regiment until, essentially, until he retired in 1891. So from 1966, I mean, 1866, to 1891, and his respect for blacks and Native Americans, he did not want to go and kill them and put them on reservations. I mean, he, he respected them. I can't say much more than that. He didn't get his star until three months before he retired, where he was obviously, as far as I can see, highly qualified. <clears throat> so, they, all four regiments did the yeoman service in the West, and they were always in the most remote outpost, and they had to build them when they got there. They went out into a wilderness and cleared, the, cut down the trees, cleared the area, and started civilization. And they built the infrastructure for civilization, too, as in roads, telegraphs, poles, uh, there were guards for stagecoaches. Anyway, no. it's, it's an incredible, an incredible story. 
that's why I wanted to talk about it in brief. And, and I finally ended up with a, one additional appendix, which is the unit histories of those four Buffalo soldiers. They're all intriguing. I, I'm also intrigued, um, Jean, here about chapter eight, Vietnam today. And yeah, we've got General Colin Powell here. Um, this again is very important, isn't it, in American history? It is. It's, and people don't know, but uh, I don't remember his first name, but Lieutenant General Waller was the deputy commander of desert for our, of American troops and maybe of allied troops. I'm not sure about that during Desert Storm. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, too. I mean, never would have happened 30 years before that. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. And of course, your readers might not know, but the Air Force <clears throat> Chief of Staff, Charles Brown, is an African-American. And of course, our Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, the retired four-star African-American Army General. Unprecedented. Oh, absolutely. And one, a... of, one of my appendices, I'm, I'm big on appendices, lists roughly 400 uh, black general and generals and admirals. And they started the first African-American general was in 1940. So getting to 400 in that brief amount of time is, I think, significant. Yeah. Absolutely. I like um, this quote here. Uh, it's by, if I hope I get a, a name right, everybody, Maya Angelou. Perfect. Uh, it's, won't it be wonderful when black history and Native American history and Jewish history and all of US history is taught from one book? Just US history. It's powerful, isn't it? Amen. Absolutely. What's new for um, Jean Protect then going forward? And, and it's not like with collective amnesia. Is there going to be a children's version? What's, what's happening? What's going on with you? Well, I'm not calling it children's version anymore. I call it a young adult version mm -hmm. because I've learned that uh, books for youth are often read by adults these days. So better to call it a young adult version. And I wrote that mainly because almost all of us, I don't know how far back, you know, whether people 30 years get taught the same baloney that we got taught, taught which is it, the cause of the Civil War isn't, wasn't clear. Well, just read their articles of secession. that generally gives you a clue. They didn't like the way the North was messing around with their peculiar institution of slavery because it was too, they didn't say this, because it made them too damn much money. Uh, so, so we, we uh, you know. Let's go to the crooks here. Where can people get your books? Your web page, do you want to talk us through where they can get the books? Oh, sure. I have a web page, jeanbatee.com, and I have a blog there, so you can read some interesting comments that I've posted over time. Of course, amazon.com. Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Just discovered that uh, Amazon is selling them very cheaply. I think they're depreciating my book. 
But on the other hand, I'm selling them very cheaply too, because I want people to read the book. It's amazing, you know. I, I had a friend at church today said, told me, he really appreciated reading my book. He learned a lot, but it was a hard book to read. It's it's not a novel, everybody. That's you sit down and um, read like a fiction book. It's completely different. There's a lot of important information here. There's a lot of facts here, everybody. It's about the history of Black Americans, African Americans in the U.S. over 400 years, from 1619 to 2019, um, where they were in society, how they've progressed or gone back, whatever, how you want to view it. And you can probably start to see why there are still so many, so much racial tension on the streets of America today. And you can see it being overspilling onto the streets. Um, so all I say is have a read, everybody, of um, Jean Vatette's books. That's uh, Eugene de Vatette. And make your own mind up what you think to him. His, his teachings, his views, his... Um, his, his theory. I certainly enjoyed it. And I simply want to say now, everybody, thank you so much again, um, Jean, for, you know, coming back for another show on my, on Talking Books. It's been great interviewing you. We've had a laugh. We've had a hoot. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to make one point before I go, John. Oh, go. Is, you make it. This book is not like a novel. You don't have to read it sequentially. No, you don't. It's perfectly fine to pick a chapter that interests you. And Put read the book down and come back a month or two later and pick another chapter. Because what this friend at church said today, it was a hard book to read because the facts that are uncovered, and they are facts, I don't document them extensively. I mean, I'm not, I, I didn't do particularly original research. I got my information from 150 or maybe 200 different historians, their collective judgment. It's, it's not that there's any doubt about it. It's that we didn't want to face this previously. And racism will not go away until we face this stuff. It's ugly, but there it is. Dr. Hugh de Vries, Betit, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about collective amnesia and also the new book that's coming out, everybody, later on in the year, Unsung Patriots. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe.